Hi, and welcome to the Itchy Podcast. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Itchy is the official journal for the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. In each episode of the Itchy Podcast, we hear from authors of articles recently published in the journal. Today's episode is the first of a two-part series featuring articles from the August 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue 8. First up, Brenda Coleman talks about her study, which investigated the incidence of and factors associated with healthcare workers working during an acute respiratory illness. Then Scott Fritkin discusses his research on creating reasonable antibiograms for antibiotic stewardship programs in nursing homes. And then lastly, April Dyer and Rebecca Mooring discuss their article, Total Duration of Antimicrobial Therapy Resulting from Inpatient Hospitalization. After listening, please be sure to go to the August issue to read the full articles discussed in this episode. Now let's get started. Our first guest today is Brenda Coleman, one of the authors of the article, Which Healthcare Workers Work with Acute Respiratory Illness? Evidence from Canadian Acute Care Hospitals During Four Influenza Seasons, 2010 to 2011, and 2013 to 2014. Dr. Coleman, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and then tell us a little bit of the background for this study? Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm the senior author on this study. It um, was conducted by my postdoctoral student, Lily Yang. And um, I'll give you a little background. So the full four season study was to look at influenza in um, acute care, healthcare workers and uh, other working adults. And this study came from that because people cannot distinguish the symptoms of influenza from other acute respiratory infections. And we all know that influenza causes thousands of deaths every year and tens of thousands of hospitalizations, particularly for people who are older and have immune compromising uh, conditions. But it also causes significant loss of work time for staff. So staff in acute care hospitals, um, most of them, uh, research has showed us that possibly greater than 90% in some cases of healthcare workers will come to work when they have symptoms of an acute respiratory illness. So they can spread that illness to their patients who are particularly vulnerable, but they can also spread it to other healthcare workers causing increased absenteeism. They can also take things from the hospital home. So um, we wanted to do research on how many people come to work while they're ill, how often they come in, who was it, um, who is it that more often comes in, why is it that they come in, is it because they can't afford it or, or they feel obligated to come in, and when do they come in? So um, do they come in only when the symptoms are very mild and almost gone, or do they also attend work while they um, have significant signs and symptoms of a respiratory illness? And so can you tell us a little bit about what you did in this study and what you found? 
Certainly, thank you. Yes, um, so as the uh, title suggests, we followed people for four influenza seasons. Now, the people who participated in the study did not have to enroll for all four seasons. It was a fairly onerous study as far as uh, what each participant had to do. So most people only participated for one season, although some did participate for all four. We talked to um, healthcare workers from nine different acute care hospitals in Canada from three different cities. They were enrolled before the influenza season and did a baseline questionnaire to tell us about some of their demographics, where they worked and how often and that sort of thing. Whenever they developed any symptom of an acute respiratory illness, we asked them to fill out illness diaries every day during that illness. And they were to send us a self-collected nasal swab so we could test it to determine what the virus was that they carried if we could find anything. In those diaries, um, we asked them every day what their symptoms were, did they work, and if they did or did not, why, and um, whether they saw a healthcare practitioner. So over the four years, or four seasons, I should say, because we did it during influenza seasons only, basically from November until April or May, um, we had uh, over 2,000 people who participated. On average, they reported one acute respiratory illness per season. In total, we had over 10,000 illness diaries over those four seasons that we were able to study. And we only looked at ones from the days that they were ill, that we, they were scheduled to work because we were particularly interested in what happened when they went to work. So that was about 6,500 diaries. We found out that from those 6,500 diaries, people worked on about 80% of those days. So four out of five days that they actually told us that they were feeling ill at some level of illness, um, they went to work. Um, when we analyzed the data, we found out that physicians were more likely than other non-nursing healthcare workers to attend um, work while they were ill. Those other healthcare workers included professional staff like respiratory therapists and occupational therapists, lab workers, but it also included people um, working in administrative roles. So physicians were more likely than those staff to work while they were ill and nurses were least likely to work. Um, we also found out that staff who worked in what we considered higher risk wards, so that includes intensive care, emergency and medical inpatient wards, were more likely to work than people on other wards like surgery and that type of thing. We then wanted to look at it and see what sort of signs and symptoms they had when they came to work. And we found out that people were more likely to work when they just had respiratory symptoms, so a cough or a you know, sneezing, runny nose, that sort of thing, than if they were when they had respiratory symptoms combined with some gastrointestinal symptoms. They were also more likely to work on the first day of their illness than they were later on in the illness. And um, if they were ill enough to consult a healthcare provider, they were least likely to come into work, which everybody would probably expect. When we looked at why they were working, we felt we found that uh, nurses were more likely to work while they were ill um, because they felt obligated. Um, if they didn't attend work, somebody else would have to pick up their shift, that sort of thing. People who attended work in those high-risk areas, as I mentioned earlier, the ICU and emergency department, they were most likely to come in because they said they felt well before their shift started. And um, despite feeling ill during their shift, they stayed on and completed the shift. Those people who had no paid sick leave, which tends to be um, part-time people, uh, said that they did not stay home because they couldn't afford to stay home. 
and people whose managers expected them to come in even when they were ill said that they came in because they felt obligated to, which is not probably a surprise for most people. And so what would you say are the most important takeaways uh, for itchy readers from this study? We think that um, we need to be clear. So the occupational health and safety staff in um, hospitals and other healthcare organizations need to educate people about the fact that you can transmit viruses and other um, pathogens such as bacteria when you are ill and that even when your symptoms don't appear to be all that um, severe, you can still pass those on to your patients and other healthcare staff. We need to be very clear in our communications about that sort of thing. When, you know, to be very clear about, you know, within so many hours of onset or if you have a fever or if you have, right? So being very clear about what those signs and symptoms might be when you should stay home. We need to ensure that we have um, sick leave coverage for all of our workers so that coming in just because you can't afford it isn't an excuse for attending work. We also need to make it as easy as possible for staff to call in and be ensured that there is coverage for them when they are unable to attend. We know that's very hard for certain professions and certain areas of the hospital to have staff come in and cover for them because they are very specialized. But if we can help with that, that would be very useful. We also need to consider our own actions and to model good behavior. We, I have seen people in areas of work that should know better that attend work when they are ill and we need to model behavior for others so that we can help change the norms and to say to other people, you know, stay home when you're ill. It's not, you know, it's not good. You're going to pass it on to patients. You're going to pass it on to uh, other peers. And the other thing that uh, is of relevance to everyone is that it gives us a good estimate too of how many days of work would be lost if people were um, not attending throughout their illness. And it only adds about two days to the season. So it's not something that will bankrupt our healthcare system. So Dr. Coleman, your study looked exclusively at Canadian acute care hospitals. Can you talk a little bit about how this research is relevant to hospitals outside of Canada? Certainly, yes. Um, so there are very few differences actually on how um, Canadian hospitals are run from other hospitals in developed countries. We have similar infection control practices and we um, look after similarly acutely ill patients. There is likely to be very little difference between what we found in Canada and hospitals in the US or Europe, for instance. And lastly, can you talk about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that it raised? Certainly. So every, all of our information was gained through self-report. So we are pretty sure that not everybody reported every illness. Um, so likely it's somewhat underestimated. We also know that people didn't necessarily complete their diaries until their symptoms were all mild, which is what we asked them to do. So perhaps we underestimated the uh, full duration of the illness. However, our results are fairly similar to other findings that are out there. So we don't think that it should be too far off. We um, also, people who volunteered for their study were volunteers and perhaps all, you know, perhaps more likely to report than some people would be. 
So for future research, we would really like to know what strategies would work best for healthcare workers uh, as far as having them um, stay home when they are ill. Great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Coleman, for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. Our next guest today is Dr. Scott Fridkin, first author of the article, Creating Reasonable Antibiograms for Antibiotic Stewardship Programs in Nursing Homes, Analysis of 260 Facilities in a Large Geographic Region, 2016 through 2017. Dr. Fridkin, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and then tell us a little bit of the background for this study? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. So I am a infectious disease epidemiologist uh, working, I had worked at CDC for 22 years or so in the working with hospital acquired infections and antibiotic resistance and now work at Emory University and Emory Healthcare, uh, trying to improve the way we use antibiotics around our system and um, around the region. So this was a study that really grew out of a partnership that we have with a clinical microbiology laboratory here in Georgia that uh, we work with as part of our emerging infections program, where we uh, report on uh, every case of uh, certain antibiotic-resistant infections that occur as part of some ongoing public health research. And it occurred to me as I talked with this partner that they test the urinary specimens from most of the skilled nursing facilities around the state of Georgia. So a very unique position to work with a partner to figure out how to help all the nursing homes process these types of testing specimens. And at the same time, the nursing homes just began to be required to have an antibiotic stewardship program in place. And the CDC has suggested that one of the core elements of a stewardship program in nursing homes includes having access to a antibiogram and that they should create their best practices for antibiotic prescribing based on that antibiogram. Well, virtually no nursing home has access to a, a real antibiogram of their own residents because so few of the residents actually have specimens sent for testing in a given year. So nursing homes are struggling to get these antibiograms. They are either working with their labs to go back you know, five, six, seven years, or they're asking for antibiograms from the hospitals that they work with. But they're really sort of in the dark a little bit about what, what is the best antibiogram for them to use. So because these, this is all happening around the same time, we thought we could study statistically if it was reasonable and valid for nursing homes to rely on antibiotic resistance data from surrounding nursing homes that should combine into a regional antibiogram to help inform the antibiotic stewardship decisions for the nursing home. Um, and so we went about doing this with the uh, clinical laboratory services, uh, our partner here in Georgia, who uh, is this referral testing laboratory. So that's sort of the background for the study was really just to test the statistical validity of combining such resistance data across many skilled nursing facilities to allow each skilled nursing facility to have an antibiogram for stewardship that's reflective of the residents in that facility. And, and so tell us a little bit more about what you did in this study and in particular what you found. So what we did was we pulled from this large referral testing laboratory the antibiotic or the antibiotic resistance testing results for uh, five common urinary pathogens 
from all urinary specimens that were processed by the laboratory. So the specimens had to come from a resident of a skilled nursing facility as defined by CMS uh, from a nursing facility in Georgia and be one of the five more common uh, pathogens. We you looked at E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Proteus, Amaravilis, and Enterococcus. And so we looked at the patient level resistance testing for the common antibiotics that are tested for any of those five pathogens. And what we did was we summed these up uh, to find out what the proportion of isolates were that were resistant for each of these different pathogens uh, amongst all of the nursing homes in Georgia. And we came up with a cumulative susceptibility proportion or percent R. And then we asked the question, does this percent R really differ based on the type of nursing facility that the resident came from? And so we applied some statistical tests uh, to try to see if there's any facility characteristic that consistently predicts uh, the likelihood of a one of these urinary pathogens testing resistant to one of the, the target antibiotics. So it was a fairly sort of sophisticated statistical test to try to get at what all of us intuitively think of as, um, you know, naturally we believe certain size facilities may make the likelihood of a isolate test resistant more likely or um, smaller facility or the age of the patient. Well, it turns out uh, these nursing home residents are very similar across all these different uh, 261 nursing facilities that we studied. Um, we found that facility characteristics or even age of the patient had very little impact on the likelihood of an isolate testing resistant. So we looked at the average length of stay of the facility. We looked at the uh, different age group that the resident may, may be in. And although there were, gosh, 23 different drug bug combinations that we looked at consistently across the board, there were very few uh, characteristics that consistently were predictive of testing resistant. Age was pretty common. Um, but probably more common was the geographic location, being in a certain part of the state of Georgia. And so, although that was not universally common, it was only, I think, common in seven of the 23 drug-bug combinations. That's really the only facility characteristic that even almost played a role. But since it was only relevant in a minority of the drug-bug combinations, we ended up really concluding that a regional antibiogram is a very rational way for the nursing homes to go uh, and to utilize as part of their stewardship program, uh, given that their facility characteristics really don't um, lead to, uh, and their resident characteristics don't lead to a, a different antibiogram from their neighboring institutions. And so what would you say are the most relevant takeaways of your study for itchy readers? Sure, so I think there's really two main findings, you know, you know, one is when we looked at the number of isolates that any one nursing home facility has access to, for almost all five of those pathogens, most facilities had insufficient number of pathogens to calculate their own antibiogram. In fact, apart from E. coli, where about half the facilities may have enough in a given year, for all the other pathogens, only about 10% of the facilities had enough urinary specimens sent and pathogens grow that they, were able to, they would be able to calculate their own antibiogram given the standards of CLS. So most nursing homes have insufficient quantity of pathogens to calculate their own antibiogram and they need another solution. 
And the second main finding is that, you know, surprise to us, the characteristics of the facility, such as average length of stay or size of the facility are not really predictive of the likelihood of isolates testing resistant. Um, there's a, a little bit of an indication that geography makes a difference, meaning that facilities that are clustered together or nearby geographic areas is a really safe bet to aggregate those data for a cumulative or for an antibiogram, a regional antibiogram for nursing homes to use. And that's really what the recommendation is from this study is, although the exact you know, definition of what that region is, is has to be left up to public health authorities or consortiums of nursing homes, but the concept of a regional antibiogram as a very reasonable way to go for nursing homes to have antibiogram data for their stewardship program is I think evidence, uh, the evidence is in this study that that's a very reasonable way to go. And Dr. Frickin, lastly, can you talk about the limitations of this study and any future research questions that it raised uh, that you either plan to investigate or that you'd like to see investigated? Sure, so I think the, um, the limitations, um, some are, are you know, fairly clear. Um, it was not intended to provide individual providers with prescribing recommendations. In other words, this regional antibiogram study is not meant to be the antibiogram for every nursing home to utilize or every nursing home practitioner to utilize to prescribe to their patients. There's always clinically important findings at the patient level that a provider needs to consider when prescribing an antibiotic for a particular infection. But rather, this is evidence that uh, a regional summary of resistance data at the regional level is a a valid approach for a stewardship program to utilize in coming up with their best practice uh, guidelines for providers to consider when prescribing for an individual patient. Um, second, we limited the analysis to only five different pathogens. It's four gram negatives, one gram positive. Um, so these findings may be unique for these five pathogens, um, although I don't think there's any biological sense to, to believe that for other more rare pathogens, it would really be different. But these are the five pathogens that account for more than 90% of urinary tract infections among nursing home residents. So I think it's fairly reflective of, of urinary tract infections, at least in, in nursing home patients. We also do not include specimens from non-urinary uh, sources, so from um, respiratory specimens or from skin and soft tissue. And so the results may differ for uh, antibiograms relevant for respiratory infections or skin and soft tissue infections. However, urinary tract infections are the number one reason for new antibiotic starts in nursing homes, and it's the most relevant need for an antibiogram uh, for nursing home stewardship purposes. But that is some additional work that could be done is to look at this for non-urinary uh, isolates, and that would be a very interesting uh, analysis to do to see if we see that there are also no facility characteristics that are predominant drivers of uh, resistance from clinical patients. Um, a second um, area of research I think would be very relevant for using, looking at urinary isolates or all isolates for nursing homes is if there's a better statistical model that could be built if we consider referral patterns and not just geography. So for instance, in Georgia, if we reanalyze these data based on uh, referral patterns of patients between hospitals and nursing homes as defined by perhaps admission and discharge transfer from Medicare to identify clusters of facilities that tend to share patients more. We would expect there to be more similarities and resistance profiles amongst patient sharing networks 
um, and we may see bigger differences in the resistance uh, and the antibiograms of these uh, referral networks, more so than when we saw when we divided our uh, data just geographically within the state of Georgia. And so that's probably the most critical next step of research is to look for antibiograms with uh, referral pattern uh, defined regions rather than just geographically defined regions. Mm -hmm. All right, well, great. Those were all my questions for today. So Dr. Fritkin, thank you again for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. Sure, my pleasure, anytime. Joining us now are April Dyer and Rebecca Mooring, two of the authors of the article, Total Duration of Antimicrobial Therapy Resulting from Inpatient Hospitalization, which is just recently published in the August issue of Itchy. Dr. Dyer and Dr. Mooring, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and then tell us a little bit of the background for this study? Thank you for inviting us on today to share our research. My name is April Dyer and I'm a liaison clinical pharmacist with the Duke Antimicrobial Stewardship Outreach Network. And my name is Rebecca Mooring. I'm an infectious diseases physician epidemiologist here at Duke University. So this study was part of a larger project funded by the CDC Foundation. Um, and the goal of this larger project was to identify and then further define and develop metrics useful for evaluating patient safety and outcome measures for antimicrobial stewardship programs. And during the first part of this project, we use a consensus building method to ask a group of experts in stewardship to evaluate proposed and previously developed stewardship metrics, both in their utility for assessing the quality of stewardship as well as their feasibility. And that paper was published in CID a couple years ago. So the outcome from the expert panel got us to a shorter list of metrics that were deemed both useful and potentially feasible to capture from the electronic health record. And then as part two of the project, we recruited some pilot hospitals to try these metrics out. So each hospital stewardship team chose a few from the list based on what they felt would be meaningful to their program and could be feasibly captured in their system. So this particular paper describes their experience in capturing the metric of total duration, which is basically a sum of inpatient antibiotic days plus the intended post-discharge antibiotic days. And our expert panel had felt this would be helpful in identifying stewardship opportunities and progress, but the feasibility in capturing these data was unknown at that time. And in terms of feasibility, the challenge is that inpatient and outpatient data are generally housed in different electronic systems. So we wanted to see if we could use our typical method for inpatient antibiotic days counts, which is calculated from electronic medication administration records, and then capture the post-discharge days calculated using electronic prescriptions, or some people call them e-scripts. So by doing this, we could get a better idea of the amount of antibiotic days that occur post-discharge charge and therefore a better idea of the total antibiotic days attributable to a single hospital admission. The stewardship teams that chose to pursue the total duration metric were inspired to do so because it would be a better measure of overall antibiotic exposure attributed to hospital stay. Patients who are started on antimicrobials in the hospital often go home with discharge prescriptions that contribute to their overall length of therapy. Those decisions made at transitions of care can be rushed and generally aren't targeted by traditional stewardship interventions, like post-prescription review or pre-authorization. Also, in work looking at antibiotic durations, the durations captured just during the inpatient time, typically two to three days per admission, are not as meaningful to clinicians. 
They think about total durations when treating patients with pneumonia or UTIs, not just their inpatient courses. So any type of syndrome-based stewardship initiative that includes a focus on duration would need to better measure practices for post-discharge antibiotics. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you did in this study and what you found? Sure. So this is a descriptive pilot study among three hospitals over a six-month period in 2016. And we aim to describe the inpatient and discharge antimicrobial prescribing in these hospitals. Um, and the study sites included one large academic medical center and two community teaching hospitals around 300 beds. Uh, the patients included in the analysis um, received at least one day of therapy on an inpatient unit, and inpatient antimicrobial exposure data was obtained from the EMAR, the Electronic Medication Administration Records, and then the post-discharge days were calculated from the electronic prescriptions data. We included the antimicrobial agents from the National Healthcare Safety Network antibiotic use um, option for this analysis, since most other antimicrobials like HIV medications would not be used for acute illnesses, and we were most interested in how folks are managing um, acute illnesses in the hospital. So we evaluated the inpatient, the post-discharge, and the total durations of therapy for um, these admissions. And we also looked at the eScript data in a little bit more detail. So looking at the types of agents, the classes, the discharge unit type, as well as looking at um, infectious syndromes defined by ICD-10 codes. Um, and so when we got our cohort together, we ended up evaluating over 45,000 inpatient admissions. And in about half of those admissions, or 23,000, um, patients got at least one antimicrobial. And so of those 45,000, about 7,000 or 16% of all admissions also had electronic discharge prescriptions for antimicrobials. We found that these discharge prescriptions were associated with significant portions of antimicrobial exposure days. Discharge antimicrobials accounted for 38% of total antibiotic duration for our hospitals, and there was some variation among the three hospitals, ranging from 34 to 41%. We compared admissions who just got inpatient antimicrobials to those who got both inpatient and post-discharge antimicrobials, and the median durations were much longer for the second group, two days versus 12 days. Looking at just the eScript data, the post-discharge duration among discharge eScripts was a median of eight days. When we looked at histograms of the eScript durations, an interesting pattern emerged. There were peaks at the most common post-discharge durations of three, five, seven, and 10 days. These are typical durations for full courses of antibiotics, which made us think that prescribers may not be accounting for inpatient days of therapy when prescribing at transitions of care. They seem to be restarting the clock at discharge. In our study, fluoroquinolones were the most commonly prescribed discharge prescription class at all three hospitals, despite internal efforts by the stewardship teams to reduce fluoroquinolone prescribing. This is also consistent with findings from Valerie Vaughn's recent work in pneumonia in Michigan, and suggests that all our inpatient efforts that have been so successful at reducing fluoroquinolone use in the hospital may not be carried through post-discharge. This is a key area of opportunity for stewardship. Since syndrome-based stewardship is a focus for many programs, we also wanted to get a sense of durations for admissions with certain syndromes. We used ICD-10 diagnosis codes to identify admissions with pneumonia, UTI, skin and soft tissue infection, and intra-abdominal infection. Assuming a seven-day duration is a typical course of antibiotics for most uncomplicated infections, we found that 78% of patients who received eScripts exceeded seven days compared to only 16% of patients who had inpatient antimicrobials only. 
This observation was even more striking because patients with discharge e-scripts had overall shorter lengths of stay than those who didn't, which suggests that their infections probably weren't as complex as those staying in the hospital for their antibiotic course. And so what aspects of your study and its findings are most relevant to the itchy readers? So I think itchy readers, readers will enjoy this study for a couple reasons. Um, first, as epidemiologists, we love to think through measurement and feasibility of measurement and how um, data can drive practice. So although our study is small, um, it is the first to kind of link up this inpatient and post-discharge e-script data without requiring an in-depth chart review um, to understand the total durations of antibiotic therapy. So I think this metric has real potential to be useful for stewards who are trying to design strategies for transitions of care. Also, as April mentioned, total durations are a more holistic measure of antimicrobial exposure. We know that the post-discharge time period is an extremely vulnerable time period for patients where they can develop healthcare-associated infections stemming from their hospital exposure. So this includes C. diff, drug-resistant pathogens. So in all our efforts to avoid healthcare environmental exposures of pathogens and count both in-hospital and post-discharge infections, we need to also count post-discharge antibiotics and design interventions to avoid unnecessary antibiotic exposures that drive these types of infections. So this study uncovers an unaddressed area of need for inpatient stewardship teams to target improvement. I was interested to see that prescribers seem to be restarting the clock at discharge and prescribing five, seven, and 10-day courses of antibiotics without considering the two to three days of inpatient antibiotics their patient has already received. This offers a prime opportunity for stewards to design quality improvement initiatives focused at improving antibiotic durations at transitions of care. For example, at two of the study hospitals from this analysis, we realized that default durations of 10 days were embedded at the electronic prescribing system. We think that this may have driven some of the peaks at the 10-day point and have done further work to remove those defaults. And can you talk a little bit about the limitations of this study? Sure. There are a few limitations with our study. First, this was a pilot study, so it was small, including only three hospitals and six months of data. We also did not do chart reviews to attempt to fully evaluate appropriateness of antibiotic therapy, which could better inform stewardship strategy. Second, we evaluated intended discharge duration, so we do not know if patients filled the prescriptions or took the complete course of their antibiotics. Third, the electronic discharge prescriptions data was highly useful but incomplete. Like all electronic data sources, there is some messiness to e-scripts, even with significant analyst time devoted to data cleaning. Two to six percent of prescriptions had a discharge duration that was missing from the day supply field or could not be calculated from interpreting the SIG and quantity in the e-script. We've worked to make the day's duration fields mandatory for outpatient scripts in the study hospitals to make these data cleaner and easier to analyze. Finally, we weren't sure how well the electronic prescriptions would capture the intended post-discharge days. So part of testing the feasibility of this total duration metric was to do a small validation study. When we performed data validation at one of our community hospitals, we noted that certain patient populations were not receiving electronic discharge prescriptions. These were typically nursing home patients, patients receiving outpatient IV infusions, and patients receiving antibiotics with dialysis. Clinicians wouldn't actually write electronic scripts for these populations, but would use handwritten scripts or defer prescriptions to providers at the next facility. So because of these missing data, the estimates in the study are likely underestimates of post-discharge days. And did your study raise any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated? 
Yes, I think this work has a lot of potential future directions and some great work is already going on around transitions of care interventions. Um, April had mentioned already some of the work going on by Valerie Vaughn up in Michigan to better describe the problem. And Valerie is also working on a pre-discharge timeout intervention led by unit pharmacists and hospitalists at the University of Michigan that I'm really interested in seeing the results of. There are also a couple areas that need better descriptive study. So for one, we did not specifically compare e-script durations for children, which may be an interesting topic for the PED stewards out there. Um, our cohort only had a small amount of pediatric patients in it, so we weren't able to fully characterize the patterns seen in kids. Also, uh, we did not evaluate discharge e-script prescribing patterns for individual prescribers. So um, there's been a lot of work in outpatient practices and some hospital stewardship programs also use individual prescriber data feedback with peer comparisons of antibiotic use to try and encourage behavior change. So I think um, in the future, the addition of these post-discharge data to inpatient prescriber feedback reports would provide a more comprehensive look at antibiotic use by prescriber, especially when we try to assess the antibiotic duration and when we try to address it uh, for syndrome-specific analyses and initiatives. So there's a lot of potential ways to take this metric and, and use it um, for behavior change and other ways um, for data feedback. So I think, you know, overall, this study shows that post-discharge antibiotic courses were too long and that those post-discharge days make up a big chunk of antibiotic exposures that are attributed to a hospital admission. So there's likely both a systems and one-to-one -one interventions that could help here. Uh, the question is what strategy is most effective at improving the discharge process and encouraging shorter durations overall. And we won't achieve this by focusing only inside the hospital. So I encourage stewards to broaden their thinking and strategy to include that post-discharge time period. Great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Dyer and Dr. Mooring for speaking with us today on the Itchy Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. This concludes episode eight of the Itchy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening.